Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode, I chat with Mark Rossman of Rossman PC in Troy, Michigan. Mark and I have a wide-ranging discussion of business law and business litigation, as well as strategies for building and managing a successful law firm. I also want to take this chance to announce season two of the Litigation War Room, starting in early 2024. We will broaden our horizons and take the podcast in exciting new directions. Our goal is to keep you engaged and informed and to provide you with vital tools for honing your skills as a litigation attorney. More on that to come. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. Mark Rossman, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Thanks, Max. Happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you here, Mark. This interview should be a lot of fun. You and I had a great discussion offline, and I look forward to hearing your insights and having you share with our listeners some of your very interesting cases that you've worked on and some of your insights about the practice of law and in particular the the building of a, a law firm from scratch. Well, likewise, from one law firm builder to the other, I look forward to addressing that matter with you and also into um, talking about how you simultaneously manage a docket of cases of high import at the same time. It, it's kind of uh, could be described as a balancing act, like a tightrope kind of. Well, it could. I think every attorney is walking a tightrope and is, is in the midst of a balancing act. Um, before we jump into the cases, can you share with our listeners a little bit of your background? How did you end up being a lawyer? Well, I was applying for uh, the School of Ed at U of M to pursue my dream of becoming a teacher and not becoming a lawyer like my dad was. And I was filling out the application and they asked why I wanted to be a teacher. And at that moment, something clicked and I decided that I didn't want to be a teacher. I actually did want to be a lawyer. So I went over to the law school and got an application for the LSAT and sent it in. And that's that. That's that. The rest is history. Okay. And tell us a little bit about your practice and about your firm. Well, coming out of law school, I took the only position of about 40 or 50 applications or resumes that I had sent out. And it happened to be in a firm that Got mixed up in just about everything, but had a particular emphasis in business litigation and and uh, partnership disputes and, um, you know, high stakes stuff. So I did that for about 13 or 14 years. I ultimately became a part name partner in that law firm and then tried my hand with another lawyer for about three months and decided after that that I wasn't in the business of looking for jobs anymore. I'd start my own office and see if some clients came my way. Ultimately, they did. Uh, We continued to grow over the years, and we just crested our eighth year of uh, practice, Mark, so heading into our ninth. So very, very excited about what the future holds. That's great. And what kind of law does your firm do? Business litigation partnership disputes, fiduciary, business tort type litigation. I do high asset divorce work and uh, certain other domestic familial related matters and general business commercial disputes between businesses and outside third parties and vendors and whatnot, as well as transactions and corporate governance and 
and business planning. Seems like your first love, if I know you, is really those partner disputes. I think you've called it separation litigation. I know you can handle almost any area of business litigation in other areas as well. Um, but can you tell us a bit more about your quote unquote separation litigation practice? Well, I call it separation litigation because somehow I became, I guess you could say, a specialist in not only the business partnership separation structuring and litigation that oftentimes goes along with that, but also in the context of the marital divorce. And uh, it's a unique combination. And I think there's a lot of consistencies across the different types of cases. And sometimes when my business cases, which oftentimes involve familial relationships and sibling relationships and multi-generational, there's a real consistency in the management of the case, both from you know, a tactical as well as an emotional perspective. In both situations, you're seeking to achieve a separation, you know, with the least possible diminishment in value to whether it be the business estate or the marital estate or the relationships themselves within the businesses and or the families. And so, you know, I come from a long line of divorces in my extended family, so I've grown up around it. In fact, I, I did my parenting time on Saturdays at the law firm of Hanigman, Miller, Schwartz and Cohn, where my dad was a lawyer. And, you know, obviously in those days to hit your hourly mark, you know, you had to take your kids in there for a little parenting time, maybe. In fact, maybe that was the reason you had to do the parenting time in the first place. <laughs> One of well, them. Fitting, fitting then, isn't it? Like, I'd never say that law was in my blood, but I guess I was hanging around a great law firm from from an early age. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, it's funny. I think there's a perception, at least among some, that business litigation is relatively calmer and less governed by emotion than other areas of litigation. And, you know, sometimes that's true, but certainly in my practice, I see that sometimes they're very much charged by emotion. Sometimes they're very personal. And then that really comes to the fore in shareholder oppression, breach of fiduciary duty, those kinds of cases, you know, things that fall under the rubric of at least the business side of what you're calling separation litigation. And, you know, I think you alluded to this. Sometimes you literally have, certainly in my practice, I've seen this and I know you've seen it in years, literally it might be brother versus sister, parent versus child, you know, two spouses fighting over the business. Wondering if you can comment on how that dynamic impacts litigation. Well, first of all, I'm getting excited just thinking about it. Cause I ref something about me. I really enjoy those kinds of cases. I don't know. I don't know if it's my background or, or what, or maybe it's from hanging around a law firm at too young of an age, but I really enjoy those cases. Maybe it's the challenge of them because whoa, they're challenging because the thing is, is you got to get to know the dynamic of a family that's evolved for a long, long time, decades, and then cascaded into what it's become today. You got to learn that dynamic really, really fast. And I like to do that by meeting everyone. And what I would employ oftentimes so that I can get to know all these people and they can get to know me. And they can understand, put names to faces because in more than any scenario, the people really do do matter because 
You're going to be negotiating with these people. You have to understand what you're dealing with. And most recently, where, where I did this is in noticing up a corporate meeting under the shareholder governance. You know, before you all often sue everyone often, like lawsuits are great, but had an arbitrator years ago say, you know, in a Southern draw, it's like, you know, the day you file is the best day of your life. And then it's all downhill from there. And I think it's totally true. It is downhill. It's a downhill ride. And, you know, you're sort of at the front of the sled controlling it the best you can as the lawyer. But before you get there, I like to utilize the corporate governance and call a special meeting, whether or not the corporate governance allows for it. Like on the cusp of litigation from a lawyer, if they call a special meeting, there's a good possibility you're going to get one. And when you go out there, you can meet these people and understand what we're dealing with. The last time I tried it, though, one might argue it backfired because when I got there, they let my client in and then slammed the door in my face and said through the door, no lawyers allowed. And so I thought to myself, well, maybe that didn't work so well. They're in there with my client now and they're talking, but we gave him instructions on what, what to say or not to say if he found himself isolated. And actually it worked because there are quite abusive to him and shutting out his lawyers and then standing over his shoulder and trying to get him to sign things and stuff like that. While we sat out, my associate and I sat out in the hall looking at the, you know, the crummy artwork of the Gladiola farm that we were fighting over out on the <laughs> west side of the state. But we came out of it and I'm telling you though, through the negotiation, they always remembered how we showed up there and like, we're willing to get the door slammed in our face. And as a sign of like, the power of the statute and how it was exercised against them. And they had to deal with this conflict of him coming with his lawyers and us making a scene and, and, and getting known to them. I think it gave us some leverage in the litigation because, you know, we were sitting there, we'd say, we're going to do it again. We're going to come on site for an inspection of your premises, which we're allowed to do under both the statute and under, you know, the litigation that we're going to get going on. And we had a nice settlement there. And, uh, you know, everybody I think was pleased. They were able to avoid the conflict that wouldn't have been avoidable if we had just filed litigation. So, you know, sometimes I think you need some inertia, you need some movement. The client needs to feel like you're not just sitting there trying to get other people to do something, but you know, a lawsuit is a little bit too nuclear and that corporate governance, derivative demands, all that kind of stuff. I'd say take it very seriously and use it as if it's like a quasi pre-litigation. It's not perfunctory. Nope, nothing is perfunctory. Right. So the kind of litigation that you and I practice, the last thing you would describe it as is an assembly line. Each case is its own case. Each client is his or her own client. It sounds like that personal investment, that willingness to get your hands dirty, to think creatively and specifically about each case are real difference makers for your practice. Is that what they mean by boutique? Like you hear about craft, you hear about artisanal, and then there's boutique. And that boutique is what they give to law firms. But the anti-assembly line kind of thing, you know, like you might find, say, in insurance defense, like when I interview people from that field, they're always like, well, you know, I want something that's not, not, not this boilerplate or assembly line. And I'm thinking like sometimes that customization process, you know, the artisanal nature of it, it's like, you know, it'd be nice to have a little assembly line. So like my view is I try and assembly line as much as humanly possible. 
And so like, I find the, the routinization in my life and in my firm needs to happen in the files. Like it's the organizational processes. Cause once it gets out of the basic organizational and intake of a file process, then it's all, it's all unique and interesting. It may be similar to other things, but you need to find those patterns in there. And that is, I mean, that is what makes it stimulating and interesting, but it's also what makes it highly demanding and energy consuming and expensive at the same time. You know, it's the difference between, you know, an Ikea kitchen dinette and one that you find at the antique shop in need of repair. You know, one's going to cost a lot more to get in the tip top shape. Well, let's dive into some of the cases you've handled. You've handled a lot of cases over the years, many with very interesting and sometimes colorful fact patterns. You have a shark and a moose hanging on your wall. Can you tell us the backstory of that? I know that that relates to a, a case that, that your firm handled. Yeah, there's actually a shark, a moose, and a sunfish or a sailfish hanging on the wall. And when people come into the office, they're like, oh, you're a big game hunter and a fisherman. And I didn't know that about you. And, and the answer is that I'm not at all a fisherman or a big game hunter. I've never fished and I've never big game hunted. I'm going to go bow hunting this fall, but like, it's the first time in my life. And, you know, I probably wouldn't even hang on the wall if I caught anything. I'd just turn it into venison and maybe, you know, force people to eat it at holiday dinners and things. But this moose and the shark came at the tail end of a settlement on a case. It was actually my first contingency case. And it was really one that was pretty risky to take because it came to me for the guy who had five personal protection orders out against him. Things like bringing a gun into the office, twirling it around, pointing it through the wall and joking around with it and making threats and telling stories that scared everyone and they got five PPO petitions pending against him. They've expelled him from the business. He's a minority shareholder and he says, can you take it on a contingency? And I'm like, sure, like, why not? What, what else are you going to do? It really looks like a good bet. Nothing that you said up to this point made it sound like a good bet. Well, that's the thing. Like sometimes you have to go into the woods where it's not a good bet. And then that was one of those times. And and, and, and I remember telling myself, if I could get through the personal protection order hearings and cross-examine those witnesses and show that it was a conspiracy, essentially, to get him out of the company, which was shown in that case, then I would be able to get at the value in the company because there was I had a lot of dirt on the other guy, too. It was sort of like one of those mudslinging fests. And... At the end of the mediation, and these two gentlemen hated each other. Isn't it funny how you can use gentlemen like that? But these gentlemen hated each other. And my client says to me after we got about, about a million something on the table, he says, I want to get the shark and the moose, and I'm not going to settle without it. So I go into the other room with the mediator. I'm like, uh, yeah, we need the shark and the moose. And it was really took longer than I thought for them to agree to it. And I'm like, this is uncomfortable. Like, I don't like this kind of game at the end of a seven-figure mediation when, when you're sitting there on a contingency. And, and so they finally agree to it. And then the shark and the moose come, and I call my client to settlements done, come pick it up. And he says, I don't want it. 
And he said, I never wanted it. He, I said, my partner loved those items. Just <laughs> keep them, throw them away, do whatever you want with them. So I kind of put them up on the wall as a, as a sign of success in a case, you know? And like, you can tell people you take things off of people's walls and settlements. And then I was in another settlement in the pandemic in another shareholder separation case, which was really a great one. Like that when the majority actually took minutes of a meeting that they held, keeping my, my client out of it and then trashing him in the meeting, his partners, the majority trashed him and took minutes of it. And I got him in discovery. And so needless to say, I was settling that case for like a million bucks too. And my client looks over, it's like 12 hours of negotiation in the pandemic over Zoom. And he says, what's that shark there? Well, where'd you get the shark? And I said, I got it in a settlement. And he said, well, we got a sailfish on our wall. You want me to get that too? And so I said, let's go. And so at the end of the mediation, I said, one more offer. Like we were cutting the baby in half three or four times, like all Solomon-esque. Like, and I asked for the sailfish and sure enough, the lawyer was kind enough and tired enough to just be like, you all must be crazy, but you can have the sailfish. And so now I have a sailfish and since then I've taken no further game, but I've settled many a case. Well, there's something very fitting about that. An outdoorsman or a big game hunter will have an office or a home just full of heads, stuffed taxidermy, you know, that are a, a monument to their exploits in the hunting field. And I guess you have something similar in your office. So maybe you can continue that going forward. Maybe by the time you retire, you'll have, you know, a full stuffed polar bear and, you know, a rhino head and God knows what else. Well, that's the funny thing about this business. You never know what you're going to come across. You can be surprised by just about anything, even manner of payment. Don't be your reputation, by the way. They'll say, uh-oh, it's against Rossman. Better bring some taxidermy to the settlement table. The attorney fees uh, might vary from time to time, but you can rest assured you'll get a better deal with a little taxidermy for the wall, you know? I actually have a very nice bar of spirits in my office, none of which I've purchased myself. It's, and I tell people it's the $100,000 spirits collection because it's just about everybody who couldn't pay their bill over the last three or four years. Man, they, they do come in with the nicest, finest bottle to tell you that they're not going to be able to make payment, you know? So it's like the shelf <laughs> of non-payers. Which looks fair. <laughs> like people literally come up and they're like, wow, you have a really that's some high-end stuff. I'm like, yeah, like that bottle's thirty thousand bucks right there. The, the guy lost his shirt at the end of the divorce or something. It's a sad story. Tell you about it over a drink. The thirty grand being what he didn't pay you and gave you the bottle as a substitute for? Yeah, like I don't want to send the wrong message. That's not, you know, something that's that's happening uh regularly. But you know, people were distressed during the pandemic and whatnot. Those are great stories, and I know we could talk about a lot of cases. I want to talk about one other one, and we'll come back to this. You run a, a business law symposium, and you were kind enough to have me involved in certain ways. And I, I believe I was emailing you about the symposium, and you write, wrote back, call me tomorrow, I'm deposing Bob Seeger. Can you tell us about that case? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. My firm took over from a larger law firm out of Chicago who was representing the LLC owned by the bass player of the Silver Bullet Band, Chris Gamble, 
and his wife, and they were mixed up in litigation with the uh, LLCs wholly owned by Mr. Seeger and his uh, lifetime band manager, Punch Andrews. And so that case had been going on for a while, and I don't know what happened in Chicago, but they were dropping their client, and somehow they got to a friend of mine, Joel Newman, who then gave me a call, and he said, do you want to do it? And I said, of course I want to do it. And so we litigated that case hard. Like that was the case of the summer that year. And we dug deep into the world of rock and roll and into this particular band. And I, I can't talk about, I wish I could talk more about it, but it's very confidential. I mean, the depositions are, are sealed and whatnot, but I learned some things that I found very interesting and I was looking forward. We were weeks away from a trial. And things happened and, you know, lo and behold, if you look on the docket, there's an order of dismissal right before it had to go to trial. So that was an interesting case. Yeah. And I think at the time it was everything that I could do not to make Bob Seeger jokes and pepper you with emails about references to Katmandu. And yeah, I was kind of casual about him. I'd say things like, all right, now, sir, turn the page. And everybody would be like, oh, I'm like, look, it's like a is this what you tell any witness to turn the page, right? And do it's a deposition. Got to get to the next page. I mean, what do you want me to say? Like, there's no other, there's no alternative. In fact, it's like a very lawyerly statement, that song. But the interesting point in the case, and, and this is all public record, is, um, you know, I mean, what triggered the whole thing is the, it's a classic story. The accountant, the, li the lifetime trusted accountant. Boy, trust is a word that should really raise a red flag in any lawyer's mind, whether it's in their own relationships or, and especially in the ones that are coming through litigation, like trusted accountant for decades. And they found out he had ripped off like eight figures, eight figures, we'll say. This case to me, outside of the specific context, but it highlights to me how the absence of controls, controls with multiple people watching other people's money can lead to tremendous loss. And when I say tremendous, I don't always mean eight figures, but I mean for a business that's hovering, has an operating agreement hovering in the low six figures, a five figure loss can be devastating. And those controls that need to be over trusted people, particularly where there's multiple people in arguably fiduciary relationships need to be there when they're not this case involved hand accountings real rudimentary stuff like that should always be a red flag too. the, the rudimentary accounting like when you're in a deposition and you ask somebody what accounting platform do you use to do your kind they're like what what a platform and I just use like a pencil and a paper and a calculator from time to time like that's a problem because recreating history in those situations is a real funny thing. So that case taught a lot, a lot of lessons in terms of litigating a business case. I'd like to switch gears a little bit. You've built a law firm from scratch. Your law firm's very well known in the, the Detroit area and seems to continue to grow. Seems like I keep seeing your name and the name of your firm popping up everywhere. Can you share some insights for our listeners? We had a great interview um, a little while back with Mike Morse, a very prominent personal injury attorney who, who shared his insights and he's written a book called Fireproof on it. 
he was building a completely different type of firm, a personal injury firm. And I'd love by way of comparison and contrast, just to get some of your insights on how I got from there to here and what can you share with our listeners? Well, one of the things that I took from Mike's book and his theory of thinking is his concept of the scoreboard. The Jumbotron. Jumbotron, right. And so like his metrics are different because he's in a purely contingency personal injury context. And if I can pause here just for, for listeners, uh, Mike Morris talks about the concept of a jumbotron. Any law firm owner, really any business owner should, should know his or her numbers. But in particular, what are your KPIs, your key performance indicators, and, and how can you easily access them on a regular basis and monitor them on a day-to-day basis? And I don't know if he literally has a jumbotron showing these things, but, but he really emphasizes the importance of knowing those numbers, being on top of them, having them readily accessible to you. Yeah. And that was the biggest thing I took away from it because I realized a good five years into my practice, I thought I knew it well, but I wasn't analyzing the numbers. And the lawyer, I think, has a tendency, especially one that's that's born and bred on the billable hour. Like at the end of the at the end of the year, seven years into practice, the two numbers that people are judging you on are your hours that you have built and the hours that you've originated, right? Like, and those are such top line numbers that ignore everything else beneath it that affect, you know, and ultimately come to a profit margin on a per hour basis. And so going into into my business, it was always like, how much am I generating every year? How much am I taking home? And then it's then quickly in your first year, like, oh, and then how much am I paying in taxes? Because, you know, that one always hits you in the face your first year. And like, and, and by way of example, I, it shows how I built my business was really through a series of surprises without a lot, lot of premeditation. And when I think back on it, I think I built my business like a lawyer did. And it was to go out and generate as much as possible, find people to do the work for you when you had the work, but not before because you couldn't afford the cushion and really employ very little foresight. And all the while, you're doing good work as a lawyer because you're just a good lawyer. But it was only recently where I really started examining the numbers. Like I might, in depositions where I'm trying to assess the value of a business, I'm like, I have all these skills in this area. Why don't I apply them to my own business? And I started examining the numbers and kind of thinking along those lines of that jumbotron, like figuring out key performance indicators based you know, less on business generated, but, you know, percentages of collections and, you know, your collections on a per hour basis. So you can see what hours you're, are giving you value and what are not and examining why and really, really digging into that deeply. And I found doing that on the metrics of the business and also applying it to your management of the docket has led to a lot of growth in terms of value per hour worked. Okay. And then the other thing I've started doing is delegating high level interpretive tasks and business development concepts to other people in the firm too. So, you know, you got to get some stuff off your plate and like I deal more in collections now and my director of business operations, Linda Ozis, does all the payables and vendors and, you know, managing the outflows of cash. So Lo and behold, my collections go up because I'm not also dealing with 
things on the other end. And it really sort of feeds into this belief that I have that if you want to accomplish things, you have to focus. And this is coming from somebody who doesn't always focus so well, like, which is good in lawsuits and stuff because you can shift focus. But you can only really get things done unless you focus. And the only way you can focus is by putting things aside. And a lot of times those things that need to be put aside, it comes in the form of delegations, which are hard for lawyers because we're kind of control freaks. But you got to let go like they do in normal businesses sometimes, you know. Hey, other people do some things, you know, and they really like doing things. That's what people are around you to do. So I always tell people in growing a business, don't be scared to delegate, even if even if it pains you to do so. Otherwise, you yeah. get, you get a log jam if you go. I don't know if that's particularly hard for lawyers. It certainly seems like it, maybe because it's so personal or maybe, maybe because you're aware that in many, if not most cases, the client has chosen you. They just didn't shop around for a, a brand or a firm, but they, they want you personally. But of course, you know, if there and you really limit yourself, both in terms of law firm growth, but also what you can offer to clients if you make it all about you. In my experience, it helps to, at the very outset, level set with some expectations that there might be other hands on their file, in addition to mine. Yeah, my goal from day one in this, in this thing was to build something bigger than me. Like, you might not think that since the firm has like my only my last name on it but truly like i want it to be bigger than me so that when when it's when it's presented to the public it's not just like one lawyer with people helping that person because that becomes too overwhelming and it disables the one lawyer who everybody thinks that they've hired and so i make it very clear right from the beginning that other than in the you know the most you know, exceptional circumstances or there's a special reason for it. I have a team approach to my case and it's, it's, you have to be sure to manage it in such a way that there's no duplicity on the file and that different people are responsible for different things. And it really helps to do that because when you're in a firm with a small number of people handling a fair number of cases, you do need interchangeability. And so you need knowledge, you need shared knowledge of, of different files. And I find that that's sort of like what enables a small team to do more things like than just that if I'm by myself or people are working alone and it, and sometimes it can get complicated and it requires a good number of hours in terms of, you know, overseeing the moving parts to that. But I do make that clear from the outset. That way you're selling a team rather than just yourself. And it's almost a survival technique to keep, you know, people happy with who they're dealing with because you're absolutely correct. They are hiring you. It's, it's Rothman they've been referred to in most cases and, in, and, and, and also in putting the other lawyers out front. You know, they also can generate the relationships that then they start developing the confidence that gets the relationship going in that regard. Yeah. Earlier, I made a reference to the Business Law Symposium. I think this is a good place to mention that. Tell us a bit about that. And has that been a vehicle for the growth of your firm? Well, the Business Law Symposium, it's certainly grown. The first time we did it, like six years ago or whatever, there was more people in the panel than the audience. 
which was great, like to chill the nerves when you have more people sitting next to you than out there. So at that point, I kind of took it as a challenge and I thought there was an opportunity to really grow it and, and into something interesting that, that a lot of people would want to attend. And over the years, it's grown to the point where last year we did it at the DIA and there was about 150 people in attendance and it was really a beautiful thing. For our listeners outside of Michigan, the DIA is the Detroit Institute of Arts, which is an absolute gem with some amazing historic artwork and it's just a beautiful, beautiful venue. Yeah, so that kind of growth, I find it fun to do. So, and, and in the process, you get to know people and other people get to know people. And so when I look at the event as a networking event, I would say, I would say a lot of people probably generated a lot of business and relationships out of it over the years. And, and me in particular, it's, it's hard to say, but I always say that the net that you cast over your, you know, local pond should be wide as opposed to always focusing on like, I hear people talk about sink your roots deep with people. It's like, I don't know, spread it wide, get known amongst people and do things that make them a little bit interested in you. Because as a firm evolves, I think that it's business generation should be geared more toward one of magnetism as opposed to like expenditure of energy, because as your business is growing, it needs you and it needs you on your files and you don't always have the time to do the like active networking. And so you got to do the kind of things that make people see you, get people to know you without actually having to, you know, really meet everyone one-on-one all the time. And I think that event is the kind of exposure that lawyers should, you know, be interested in and whether it be in like the creation of it, like I've done here or just participation. And I think that's what attracts people to speaking in it. And it's just a healthy dialogue and some interesting topics and an open bar. That always helps too. Certainly. Well, to wrap up, let me ask a, a question that I think ties together some of the threads that we've been talking about. Sometimes you hear that when it comes to business development, there are quote unquote riches in the niches, that the way to grow quickly and to gain a high profile is to have a narrow niche, the one thing that you are known for. And uh, many of the gurus um, strongly discourage having a general practice or lots of different practice areas. In your case, you certainly don't have a general practice, but your firm and you personally do quite a few different things. And yet you're also somebody who has really carved out a niche in that shareholder oppression, partner dispute, business separation kind of litigation. It seems like you've split the difference. Just wondering if you can comment on that and if you agree with the statement that the uh, riches are in the niches and and how you balance those two things, having a, a niche practice while also building your law firm really across the board when it comes to business litigation and transactions and some of the family law and other things that you do? Well, I'd say everything that I've become practice area-wise has been by default of just what I've had come my way and been the only lawyer at the law firm to be able to or available to do it. And that's oftentimes how a lawyer's practice area has evolved. You know, I mean, I can just look back on the one or two of my very first cases that I ever did. And then I ended up doing all that the rest of my career for upwards of two decades. It's just weird how that happens. But 
in hindsight, what I've become is similar to what you've described, which is really specialized in a couple of areas and then really able to do just about anything if push comes to shove, which I think was a very important mix when it came to starting my business. And I think it's something that you can evolve your practice around. And then as you grow and and evolve, decide what you're going to do and not do. And in my case, it was these shareholder oppression cases and the divorce cases. And then it became during the recession, collection cases on behalf of creditors on commercial collections and foreclosures and receiverships and personal guarantee actions and executions at people's houses and evictions and all of that. So like, I would say those are my three specialty areas. Like I can talk about them in my sleep, cite case law, you know, give a speech on them without preparation. And every lawyer should have at least one, if not a couple of those areas. And by the time they get to a point where they're going to engage in some entrepreneurship or endeavor of like starting their own practice. Cause it just helps so much to say I'm the best at something. And not only that, but I can pretty much handle anything else you do. And then in my case, it happened so quickly. I started getting cases that I couldn't handle and it put me in a position where I needed other really smart people around me because there was mountains to climb over and it's hard to climb over mountains by yourself. That was the business relationship that I think is the hallmark to new law firms. And and that's why you see a lot of new law firms with, you know, good lawyers with the decade plus behind them coming together and like sort of generating their own thing and doing some crossover and coming together. And I had a few relationships like that, that were a lot of fun, but I find that that of counsel, young lawyer, we're starting our own law firm relationships. They tend to be short-lived because the parties are, are driving in their own direction. And the beauty of that relationship is that the of counsel, you know, everybody's sort of getting paid when the money comes in. So nobody has to worry about making payroll. And then, then I went into the other way of avoiding payroll, like not from a tax perspective, of course, I'm talking about like hiring someone. And of course you pay the partners, pay payroll to themselves, but like, you know, partnership and that's good too, but partnerships with young lawyers and, you know, starting out with nothing and all of that, those can grow in really interesting ways. And those tend to be short-lived too. So my partnership arrangement ended after four years. And then I got to a place where I was on my own again and through the pandemic and moving headlong into where I wanted to be, which is growing the firm a little bit beyond myself with some really capable lawyers right now. This has been a fun interview, interesting, wide ranging, engaging. I I like the stories you've been able to share. If listeners want to find you, they want to contact you or learn more about you or your firm. How can they find you, Mark? 248-WIN-HUGE. That's not true, is it? No, it's not. That's probably Mike Morris. Now they're all going to be calling you. No, you know, you know my firm. We won a wrongful death claim in February. Wrongful death. Yeah. Yep. Guy was electrocuted on top of a building. Sad story. 
Yeah. And uh, yeah. we actually took it to a three-person arbitration panel after about four years of heavy-duty litigation against Secrets Wardle and, uh, you know, lit them up for 750 Gs. So we do step outside of our box here from time to time when I think it actually shows our versatility. And I view myself and my firm as trial lawyers first and business lawyers second. And you know what? That's how you get people to the settlement table because they know you're, you, you really, you're one of those sick people who enjoys trying your cases. 100%. Yep. <laughs> Let's go. So, and it's also how you win when you get there. So trial lawyer first. It's a good rule to live by. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I'll just tell listeners if they want to find you, I guess they can Google you or what's the URL for your website? RossmanPC.com. RossmanPC.com. And uh, do you have uh, Instagram and TikTok and uh, all those other social media? No, but we have, we have LinkedIn because we're business lawyers and we should be conservative in our approach to how we present ourselves in the digital space. You know what I mean? That's right. That's right. And of course, anyone can Google the, the business law symposium and find out more about that project as well. Yeah, that's going to be in February next year. Date to be determined. You have a theme or a topic? Uh, it's going to revolve around uh, the federal bench with a focus also on the magistrates, which I think are an interesting group of people that people wonder about and might practice in front of all the time and might be interested to hear from. And so the federal bench, and we're going to invite some judges too, of course, and experts. I think we focused on just about everything, except we haven't had a symposium dealing with the expert's perspective on things like valuation, litigation, retention, cost, preparation, that kind of thing. So, and uh, so that's where we're leaning in this in this regard right now. Okay, very interesting. Well, we will look forward to more information about that. Mark, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for being a guest on the Litigation War Room. Thanks a lot, Max. It was a pleasure to be here. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room and please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the Litigation War Room. 